Blog Talk Radio.
tell you to sit back, relax. As always, you can call in at 323-679-0841. Any questions or comments? And for our panelist discussion, we have invited Brother Alberta Jones, Argo Nimitz, and Bam Boshishungo. So this is the order of the day. This is the agenda for tonight. Again, we encourage you to call in for any questions or comments. And like always, the way we get started with our party, we'd just like to briefly introduce our political panelists for this evening. We'll start with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Oh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to our guests, uh, the listening audience, and fellow panelists. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Evan. Next, we are bringing Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, peace, Brother Africa, and peace to all those within the sound of my voice. My name is Haki Kamathamashoki. Come with African awareness, and I'm all about institution building. And institutions are actually important for a number of reasons. But one of the things that I find extraordinary in terms of the, uh, institutions, I recently read an article uh, <clears throat> entitled Washington Fear Socialism, and it talks about the fact that the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, the Economic Advisors for the President of the United States, uh, wrote a 72 page document detailing just how uh, important socialism is to the masses of people in America. It talks about the fact that sentiments in Americans support socialism. The article also went on to talk about the fact that three people they see as a threat to capitalism. They talked about Alexandria Cortez out of New York, Rashida Tlaib out of Michigan, and, of course, Bernie Sanders. And the question is, of course, what do these sources stand for? Why are they so important in the lives of American people? Uh, one of the things that they stand for is the minimum wage increase of $15. They also stand for federal job guarantees. So often we hear about poor people don't want to work, that they're too lazy. But in fact, this job would mandate the government actually uh, make jobs available for people, which means there'll be less profit in, for the capitalists and, and more dis- dispersing of wealth as it relates to the citizenry. They talk about higher taxes on wealthy and corporations. They also talk about free public education in terms of colleges, and more importantly, they talk about tackling climate change. So these things are extremely important. So, but it's important to us, you know, as a community, that we have institutions in place that have this kind of this discourse around why socialism is so important, and how it can revitalize our lives, why it's so important to have in terms of um, uh, preventing you know, some major uh, <clears throat> major problems that are coming out as a result of the kind of greed and average that exists in society. So institutions are extremely important, and I encourage people to get busy about building institutions because without them. There's no adequate adequate way, uh, realistically, of formulating you know ideas, which is going to help us in terms of a very uh, difficult struggle we have ahead. And I want to thank you for having me again, Brother Africa. Okay, Father Brother Haki, we bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, uh, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. 
And thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And next we have Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, welcome to <clears throat> Africa on the Move. Thank you. Peace, everybody. Brother Jabari, resident researcher, as usual, looking forward to being part of another great program with such distinguished panelists. Thank you for the opportunity. <clears throat> okay, thank you, panelists. Like always on Africa on the Move, we have our weekly panelists who give their perspectives and views on issues and concerns that are impacting our world. But at this point in time, where we normally do what's going on in our world community, we'd like to bring in a special guest today for this segment. And the guests that we have today, we have with us um, two culture workers. We have with us Sister Brother Agazi Lightenhouse and Sister Nathaniel Net. May. They are culture workers. They work with a group called Fruit or Label. And what we're going to do at this particular time, we're going to bring them in and we would like to talk about a little bit about the role of culture workers. So, Brother Agaza and Sister Nathaniel Nett, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, we can. We'd like to welcome you all to Africa on the Move and I went to your website and I heard so much about your work that you've been doing for many, many, many years. And we know culture workers have a very important role in our in our community and in our movement. What I would like for you to do right now is talk to the world in terms of first give us a general background of who y'all. Start with the sister first. Hi, I'm Nathanette. Uh, I am the cultural coordinator of the Fruit of Labor Singing Ensemble, which is the cultural arm of workers and civil rights organization Black Workers for Justice, uh, which is headquartered here in North Carolina. Uh, We've been around as a singing ensemble for the last almost 35 years now. Uh, In the, the onset, one of the founders or the visionaries for the Black Workers for Justice, Brother Abner Berry, um, spoke with you know some of the founding other founding members of Black Workers for Justice and Gaza was one of those people just talking about the vision, the need for culture to play a role in the movement and how culture can be used as a tool to educate people, to motivate people, to inspire people, um, to to stay the struggle or to to get into the struggle. Um, so the Fruit of Labor was formed based upon those discussions, the understanding that organizations need a cultural um, foundation in them, um, and that music and art uh, play a whole role in that, uh, in, in documenting the history, <coughs> encouraging folks. So Fruit of Labor was formed out of those discussions, and uh, and Gaza can talk a little bit more since he was the founding, the first member of the Fruit of Labor. So, Angaza, you want to add to that? Yeah, we, we have to state that the, one of the brothers, peace and blessings be upon him, he was not just a cultural worker. Abner Berry was a revolutionary. He belonged to the African People's Party, based out of Philadelphia at the time. So he certainly brought a certain perspective on why we had to create cultural institutions, as the brother was talking about. He was talking about the importance of institutions. And don't forget, We've always had our own cultural institutions, even before we got here on this uh, godforsaken uh, uh, land. Uh, 
and we understood that its purpose was to make sure we understood who we were and who our enemies were, and also it was to make certain also I mean it has to you know it was supposed to carry our history for, and as you know, a lot of our cultural workers today don't have a good sense of uh, what our people's history has been. Uh, it, it, it doesn't start here in America. So our music generally uh, goes through all genres. You know, you name it, Afrobeat, uh, blues, jazz, uh, you know, hip-hop, um, um, reggae, uh, you name it. If you listen to our latest uh, CD, State of Emergency, because that's the situation our people are in, uh, that's the the opening uh, CD or opening song, State of Emergency, but it's also the the title of our latest album. Uh, I, I'm, I'm encouraging everybody to go to fruitoflabor.org. Go to www.fruitoflabor.org. You'll see a picture or pictures, and right underneath the pictures, hit on sample of the music, and you'll you'll learn that our music speaks to our people's history, our people's struggles, and uh, it certainly has to be international since we're we're people. Of the world, Africans are people of the world, whether they're in, in Brazil or America or on the motherland, and so our music has to speak to all of that and uh, try to understand that it has to unite uh, all of us as we continue to struggle against all forms of oppression, and in particular, our job is uh, challenging U.S. imperialism and uh, also uh, the, the broader multinational corporations that are responsible for repressing our people all over the world. So uh, we're honored to be the cultural ambassadors of Black Workers for Justice. We are not just singers or cultural workers. We are a revolutionary group of cultural workers. We are an organization. We're not a band. We try to make that clear to the young folk. We ain't a band. We're not trying to get get on, uh, you know, The Voice or, or or Hollywood. We're trying to use music and culture to deepen our people's understanding of what our roots are, who our enemies are and also carry forth our history. And uh, also, we have to also be able to use our music to shape a better vision of the world that we want, and it certainly isn't capitalist. You know, um, Agazi and Nathan, I often wonder as a revolutionary cultural worker, why y'all chose the path that y'all chose in terms of when we talk about music, most people think music in terms of concept with mainstream media, popular music in terms of the the, the the kind of music you hear that doesn't really inspire you and elevate that people to be the best that they can be. And one of the reasons many of these people are chewing the route because they have somewhat been more motivated by, by the money. What allow y'all not to take that role and chose to deal with music that can help stimulate, motivate, and liberate our people? Well, um, one thing about the members of the Fruit of Labor Singing Ensemble is that we all came out of or came into the Fruit of Labor through some type of struggle. We were either members and um, organizers or active in our communities. Uh, we were active in our workplaces, in our unions. So the basis was there, you know, initially that it was about something much larger than just us ourselves. We sang on the side. We may have been in a choir or um, sang in our family gatherings or something like that, but we also had were active in the community. We were fighting against, uh, you know, the collective bargaining ban here in North Carolina. We were fighting 
or for environmental justice in our communities to clean up Superfund sites, to oppose you know these large-scale hog operations, industrial farming operations here in North Carolina. You know we were involved in you know just the the fighting for workers' rights on the jobs in terms of the discrimination and unfair hiring practice and health and safety issues on the jobs. We were all active you know, in our communities again and in our workplace. So we came at it from a, 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 a need that we had, too, and we saw the need in our communities that we needed, you know, inspiration. We needed education. There were a lot of struggles that are going on across North Carolina in these small towns and, and workplaces and communities where people feel like they're isolated, that nobody knows about their struggle, nobody cares about their struggle, that they're out there by themselves, but the songs that we write, you know, the the original tunes that we write, music and uh, spoken word pieces that we write, come directly out of those struggles. You know, either we were involved in them ourselves, or we sat down and we talked with people who were involved in them, or we were out on the picket line with them, or we were in the community at a rally with them, or we were at a church at a prayer vigil with them or we were in jail with them which is the uh situation we had with the moral monday movement where thousands of people got locked up for civil disobedience with this racist north carolina state legislature so we wrote them in jail we wrote them on the picket line we wrote them in the middle of our people's struggles all the battlefronts yeah black workers for justice has been there on all the battlefronts on the war on black america we've been there and uh, it's very important that um, musicians understand and also singers and poets understand, all artists understand, that art, as we learned from the BAM period, the black arts movement, thank God for Sister Sonia Sanchez, Amira Baraka, peace and blessings be upon Brother Amiri, who passed not so long ago, and many of the other great uh, you know, black artists in the cultural movement. We've learned so much from them, but also we understand the importance of studying. Amila Cole Cabral, who wrote some powerful uh, pieces that we need to all study on the question of the importance of culture, and particularly cultural imperialism, which is what most of our people are suffering from, mm-hmm. because they, they lost because of cultural imperialism, uh, which serves the interests of the uh, white racist uh, corporate uh, 1%, and not the uh, day-to-day interests of black people, working people, oppressed people. So... Um, we study, whether it's uh, Paul Robeson on culture, whether it's Mao Tung on culture, and particularly our own African heroes. Too often black Marxists and white Marxists in particular do not raise up the contributions of revolutionary uh, African Americans and Africans, uh, and, and they need to study them because they bring a unique perspective in terms of um, how we as uh, uh, of black revolutionary cultural workers need to relate to uh, our people's uh, struggles and uh, use it to inspire them and paint a vision of the world that we want, which isn't which ain't capitalism. Okay, on that note, what we're going to do is we're going to go to our panelists. We're going to each one of our panelists to raise one particular question to you, and we ask you to respond to um, the nature of the question. Right now, Brother Anthony, we give the mic to you. Uh, certainly, and uh, thanks for t- uh, for taking uh, uh, time to be on our program today. Uh, thank you. Well, it was uh, 
Very informative. Um, you mentioned that you're based in, uh, in, in North Carolina currently. Uh, are you? Uh, are there uh, other branches or similar organizations in other parts of, um, uh, of the U.S. as well that yes, are doing work of a similar nature that you're doing? Yes, we have members in other states, other cities, particularly in the Black Belt region, where the majority of African Americans reside. As you know, over 52 to 54% of all African Americans uh, reside in uh, the the Deep South, so we have other members in other states, other regions. Okay. Thank you. Next we'll go to the next panelist, Brother Haki. The mic is yours. Yeah, I just got a uh, just a brief statement. Uh, you know, I want to start off by saying, you know, I commend the brothers and sisters in the fruit of labor in terms of the work that they do. Because one of the things, uh, and I'm quite aware of, is that often we engage in political discourse. A lot of times we engage in highfalutin theory and, and, and ideas, which may be amenable, may not be amenable to the to the understanding of the masses of people. And so, therefore, in that context, we understand that having you know cultural workers out there, cultural workers out there you know, spreading that message in a way in which it's palatable to the masses of folks is very much needed. And I just want to thank the brothers very much for, for the fruit of labor and the work they do for the masses of our people. All right. Thank you, Brother Aki. Next, we'll go to Brother Zabari. Brother Zabari, the mic is yours. I just want, <clears throat> I would like for our guests, thank, first and foremost, thank you for taking part in the program, but I want them to just expound upon this thought Something that I've come to realize is that in regards to how um, culture can be used as propaganda to be antagonistic toward those for progressive causes, that a lot of times companies may get free advertising and music because if you were to do just listen to mainstream radio, how often is it that you'll hear those products that are um, not in the best interest of health being advertised? I just want them to speak to how that can how music can be used as a propaganda tool to keep people disillusioned versus enlightening them to the real reality. <clears throat> well, um we certainly see every day uh with the music that comes across the the radio that our young people are listening to, that people are listening to, um it does not certainly move them to higher thinking, to critical thinking, to um analyzing, you know, politically what's going on around them and why it's happening. Why is it uh, that, you know, workers, why why don't we have health care? Why is there no universal health care? Why is it that workers cannot make a living wage? Why is that, why is there no standard of living, you know, that's appropriate for people to be able to raise their families on? It People are not questioning those things. People are not questioning, you know, why, you know, is this particular government so bent on making sure that, you know, people don't have the things that they need, that they don't have the health care, that they don't have the housing, what's going on with gentrification. And the our, our music or the culture that's out there that we hear on the radio every day does not encourage people to, to really be critical of that. Um, with us, you know, the songs, like I said, that we write come directly out of struggle, um, and we understand that 
we make we try to make the songs that we write in a in a way that you know a chorus is something that really gets people to think or it sticks in their mind and they're constantly you know it's simple enough that they can repeat it over and over again and they begin to think you know a little differently about you know it might be environmental justice it might be um you know why people are dying in their communities they begin to really begin to look at and what's going on around them and critically analyze why things are happening the way they are. And uh, that's how we try to write our songs. Um, that's how we try to, you know, encourage people and educate people about what's going on around them through our music. Yes, we also raise up the question of self-determination and power, that our people in our songs, we got to raise it up. We don't have to mention those words rhetorically, but we got to raise the question of, that our struggle is a struggle for self-determination. It's a struggle for real power, and um, that uh, we have the power to uh, to win that uh, that that power to turn this uh, thing right side up. Okay, brother Moses, the mic is yours. Thank you. Um, um, I'm I'm really impressed with your uh, commitment to to the struggle. Uh, I do believe that art and literature should serve the revolution and that, you know, that's, that's the role of culture workers. We have, I'm in the D.C. area, and we have Lucy Murphy and others who are carrying on that, that spirit. Uh, I, I just commend you for um, your your commitment, and I just thank you for your commitment. I really don't have any questions at this time. Thank you. Now, we perform all over the country. We, the Senegal, Venezuela, Cuba, we travel the world with our music, bringing our message and solidarity with our people and the struggles of the world. More importantly, the reason that we're going to be performing at the 20th anniversary of Southerners Against Racism Network on November 25th, at the Haytai Heritage Center. November 9th. I'm sorry, November 9th in uh, Durham on November 9th, which is a Friday, is because we use our music to not only sing and, and get people jumping and rocking, we got to use it also to agitate around the world that we're fighting for, the challenges the, that we are taking on. we got to put our, point our fingers at who are our enemies. And so this gives us an opportunity performing at these events uh, to um, do some political agitation and also talk about the work of Black Workers for Justice and the union that we're a member of. We're a member of a union, the North Carolina Public Service Workers Union. It's 95% black folk. You don't run into a lot of unions like that. And it's here, based here in North Carolina, UE Local 150. And we get a chance to use it at union conventions and some of these other unions where we even challenge the racism in those unions. It's important that people see our role as cultural workers is not to fit in, not just to rock the house, but to um, also agitate, um, put forth the great work, particularly of our comrades in the All-African People's Party. And peace and blessings be on Sister Bobby. I heard she passed not so long ago. She was here, her and her husband, uh, and... Uh, some of her other comrades, we used to work closely with them, and uh, we hope, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to continue that work with them. But we use it to build relationships as well as we travel. Uh, we're building right now the Black Liberation 
uh, the black assembly, it's called the National Assembly for Black Liberation, putting forth what we call a black manifesto. And we're hoping that as we use these uh, performances and presentations that we make, to put forth and agitate around why we got to rebuild and revitalize the black liberation movement here in the U.S. and why we got to participate in hammering out a new black manifesto that brings us uh, up against the war on black America. So uh, we're looking forward to this this concert where we're going to be featured on November 9th in Durham. And if you want to know more, Go to our website, www.fruitolabor.org, to learn more. Okay, as you just mentioned, I'm just going to put a little quick promo for the Southern Anti-Racism Network. We will be celebrating this 20th anniversary in Durham, North Carolina, on Friday, November the 9th at 7 p.m. at the High Hazard Center. There they will have Lucy Milford, the family member of Sarah. We um, she will be the Nancy the event the event and sing from her amazing repertoire. We have David Robo, he a four singer and songwriter of international acclaim, based in Oregon. We will sing his message of freedom and justice for all. And we have, of course, the feudal label singing ensemble, well known in North Carolina as the cultural arm of the Black Worker for Justice. I expect to have all of these at this particular event. Again, those who hear this message, please come out and support it. It's on November 9th. And for more information, I'm going to give you also maybe a contact number you can call. Brother um, and sister, can you give your number out for contact information as well? People may have interest to. Okay. 876-7100. That's 919- 919- Eight seven six seven one seven. Or you can reach out to a Teresa Alamine at nine one nine eight two four zero six five nine. So please come out and support this event, support the artists. They one of the things we can say about these artists, they have been very consistent and they have been in this movement for a long time. So they're here to stay. So in terms of closing I'd like to ask each one of y'all just give give a final summation on the nature of being a culture worker and how people can support y'all. Well, this is Ungaza Sababu Laughing House. Um, it's very important that we see our music as a way to educate our people politically, raise their consciousness, and use it to shape a vision for a better world. Uh, also, we're not just known here in North Carolina. As I stated before, from San Francisco to Milwaukee to Chicago, we have done tours. And we're not just a bunch of old folk. We got some young blood, you know, um, age 20 on up to about 35, 40, uh, uh, who are part of the fruit of labor. We got to constantly bring young people in. And we're going to continue these great traditions that our organizations have built. And um, I'll let Nett say her closing comments. So we, we'd certainly invite people to visit our website again, www.fruitoflabor.org. Uh, check out our music. Uh, we do all styles of music. We have jazz. We have R&B. We have reggae. We have go-go. 
We have a something we call Afro Billy. We have um, hip hop. We have some spoken word. We do all all of the the, the genres that are included in the African American community. So we invite people to certainly support us by going to our website, sign up for our newsletter, uh, to be on our mailing list to get um, updates of what's happening here in North Carolina in terms of on the the justice front too, fighting for for justice, but also culturally also. Um, So we invite people to check us out. Order our CDs online. We have four CDs. Order our CDs online and just send us a word of encouragement too. We love to hear from people who say, who hear our music and say that it it has inspired them. And by email, how can they reach y'all? They can go to Fruit of Labor. WCC, that's W like in Wilmington, C like in Charlotte, C like in Concord, at North Carolina, I mean, I'm sorry, at Netscape.com. That's Fruit of Labor, WCC, at Netscape.com. All right, Brother Ngazi and Sister Nathanette, we'd like to thank y'all for your contribution to your people for motion towards their liberation. And we'd like to let our listeners know that please contact these culture workers, these revolutionary workers. I mean, they are not only should we support them, but they are a tool that we must use towards our liberation. So, again, we'd like to thank you all. And at this point in time, we're going to take a station break. And when we come back, we're going to have a discussion on Cuban U.S. as it relates to this question of race and racism. We'll be right back, and don't you go nowhere. You're listening to Africa on the Moon.
right, stop being a buffalo soldier. That's right, we stole from Africa and brought to America. Fighting upon arrival and still fighting for our survival. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. As part of the still fighting for our survival, based upon our arrival, we can now have an interesting discussion that has have had, that have had an impact on the African community and the world for, for the past centuries. And it's a question that many people often ask and talk about, but they may not be clear about it. And that is, we're going to talk about this whole question of race and racism. For this discussion, we're going to talk about it in the context of the historical development and reality as it relates to two particular countries, that's the U.S. and Cuba. And to lead the discussion, we have two political organizers who have volunteered their time and service to share with us their perspectives on this question of race and racism and its reality and how how it plays out in terms of the two countries, the U.S. and Cuba, we have with us Brother Alberto Jones and Brother Bamboshi Shungo. You first like to bring me in. Welcome, Brother Alberto. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Welcome. Brother Alberto and Brother Bamboshi, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, bro. Happy to be with you today. You know, um, one of the things I'd like for y'all to do real briefly, if you can, for the listeners who may not know who y'all, can you just briefly introduce yourself, Brother Alberto, share some background about who y'all. My name is Alberto Jones. I was born in Cuba in 1938 in a sugarcane plantation by the name of Banes on the northeastern side of Cuba. Uh, I worked for the United States Naval Base for approximately five years, uh, my family in total, who migrated for, uh, from the north, sugarcane field, to be employed by and the American Naval Base, contributed altogether probably uh, 250 to 300 years of loyal work. On October 22nd, the day of the beginning, of the missile crisis, uh, I made a decision uh, to die with my family in Cuba and not as a loyal employee, as many, many did. From there, after trying to catch up with my studies, I was able to um, uh, realize an entry exam that was offered at, by the University of Havana, and that's where I studied during six years as uh, veterinary medicine. In between, I was selected or chosen among other nine uh, fellow students to travel to um, Germany, uh, the East, how do we say that? Uh, the German Democratic Republic or Eastern Germany where I uh, studied for 19 months uh, ways of combating catastrophic animal disease since Cuba had some sort of advance notice that um, the U.S. government was preparing uh, bioterrorism against that country. 
Uh, I returned uh, again, as I said, in 1966. I graduated in 68, and in 71, I had to apply um, my experiences or what I had learned in Germany because the first bioterrorism attack against Cuba took place in 1971. Um, I was at the time responsible of running uh, the veterinary diagnostic laboratory of the province of Oriente, which is the equivalent of one fourth of that country. Uh, although the extension was unmanageable for any laboratory, we were the worst equipped technically and, uh, and professionally in the country. We did as much as we can, and fortunately, because we were the first one uh, to have a pathologist in that uh, province, which was my specialty, I was able to diagnose a number of um, illnesses that were unknown in the province, and two of them was unknown in the nation. Notwithstanding such um, successes and my job, I probably went amok with um, the leadership of the institution because they felt that as directors and all of those titles, they were entitled to have free access to the goodies that existed in the laboratory. Briefly said, veterinary laboratory anywhere in the world, uh, if there's any corruption going on, there are dangerous places to work for multiple reasons. Uh, usually, 90% uh, of the employees are, girl, are women. Um, there is abundant um, availability of, of animals. Uh, that means protein, uh, food to eat, because contrary to patho uh, human pathology, um, we can also eat our pa patients. What do I mean by that? If we receive, which is normal procedure, um, three or four animals for a given, there's a question about what is going on, and after a couple of diagnoses, we are able to establish sensitively what was wrong with that animal. Then the other, we will put them in quarantine, we will treat them. And if they uh, overcame uh, the illnesses, then we had animals to be put into an adjacent form that we had. And these animals would grow and, we, and they would serve as food for uh, our employees, but the most difficult one was that in in the lab we have a warehouse, and that warehouse has a lot of bad substances, all of those terrible chemi uh, chemicals like sulfuric acid and similar things. But also we had alcohol, which made that a terrible and uh, nearly fatal mixture. Prohibiting my bosses to enter the lab turned me, uh, they all turned against me, 
I was accused of horrible deeds, none of which I committed, but I ended up in jail anyway for four and a half years. And after spending a year or so in Cuba trying to clean up my uh, image, uh, that did not happen. And I decided to be become one of the Mariel, uh, one of another one among the Mariel Boatlift that arrived in the United States in 1980. That's pretty much who I am. Thank you, Brother Alberto. And Ben give us a little brief background on who you are. Well, I, like Brother Alberto, was also born in the Caribbean, an island just south of Cuba called Jamaica. I grew up in Chicago and have been involved in the civil rights movement from one year after I got to this country in 1964. I am currently the co-chair, one of the co-chairs of the National Network on Cuba, who just recently had a national meeting in Minnesota at which Brother Alberto and other brothers and sisters gave magnificent presentations. Okay, and continue this um, discussion around this whole issue of looking at U.S. and Cuba as it relates to this phenomenon of this whole concept of race and this issue of racism. I'll ask y'all just maybe make a general opening statement on that subject area. And once you have made your opening statement, we'll have some dialogue around the area of race and race as it relates to or applied to the very history of these two countries. So, Brother Alberto, we give you the mic first, the opening mic is yours. Could you please uh, repeat your question? I, I missed part of it. No, we're just going to want you to make a general statement on how do you view this question of race and racism as it relates to the history in the U.S. and Cuba. Yes. That is a extremely important issue that every revolutionary in this country, every Afro-American who has suffered the indignities of racism should join forces with um, Afro-Cuban because in my view, it's the only way for us to solve this intractable problem in Cuba and in America. I think it's important to establish that the same issue have a different approach in Cuba and in the United States. It is only recently as a matter of distinction that Cubans have reluctantly, myself included, accepted the, to use the term Afro-Cuban. But we have to do so because of the persistence of racism and its sequence in Cuba, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union in, in 1990. Prior to that, 
we were all Cubans. And contrary to black America, in which we are black first and American after, uh, in Cuba, we identify ourselves as Cuban first and black after. This difference arises from the fact that contrary to the very ugly history of the United States, from the first war of independence, blacks in Cuba played a pivotal and decisive role in all three wars of independence. We were promised by the father of the Cuban nation, Jose Martí, to create a country for all with equality, justice, and happiness indistinctive indistinctive of your race, your creed, or whatever. Unfortunately, Marti died in war and upon towards the end of the, the war when the Spanish army of occupation was exhausted, the United States intervened with Teddy Roosevelt leading um, a black segregated army, and he reimposed Southern America racism in Cuba. That disappointed so many thousands of blacks who saw their hopes and their expectations dashed by this new government. And only 10 years or 8 years after, to be precise, they, they created the first independent party of color in the world in order to uh, claim or fight within the system for their rights. This did not work either. And when they were unable to fight within the system in 1912, they decided to create an uprising which was more than an uprising. It was a way of expressing publicly their dissatisfaction with what was taking place. And that's when the Cuban government organized the largest and most powerful, uh, what would you call that? SWAT team or whatever, a powerful army that was sent into eastern Cuba and even today, no one knows exactly how many black persons who was being a member of, of those that were, had risen or simply was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and they were slaughtered. Conservative estimate of places at 3,000, other goals far higher than that. And that's one of the greatest stains that is on Cuba and have lingered until today and many more until the government publicly um, recognizes fact and apologizes to the people. Thank you. 
Thank you, Brother Alberto, Brother Ben Bushy. Your opening statement on this issue of race and racism and its history and how it may have played out in the U.S. and Cuba from your perspective. Uh, I think that when we look at racism, especially in the United States, it is a question of one, a settler colony, and secondly, it's a question of power. I'm saying one, a settler colony, because there obviously were two different types of colonialism that was practiced in this hemisphere. One was a settler colony, and to distinguish that from the just outright colonialization, I would say a settler colony existed in areas where not only did Europeans come to settle and to rape the natural resources, they did not come with the eye of returning to Europe rich with the resources they stole and living in Europe, but instead they brought women and children because they intended to settle and to live rich in this hemisphere. So, in saying that, I would like to note that there were some peculiar differences. In the regular colonies, you had the majority of immigrants, the majority of colonizers being men. In a settler colony, you had men and women. In colonies where the majority of colonializers were men, there was always a disparity and a biological need on the part of the colonizers for sex with either indigenous women or women who were brought as slaves versus in the federal colony where that need was basically fulfilled by the women that they brought, not to say they did not also venture into the areas of indigenous and African women, but these were more on the ground and not particularly uh, exhibited with pride. So in saying all of that, I'm saying that it was much easier for a racist attitude to take root and spring forward inside the United States. It also existed in South and Central American Caribbean. But in a less viral form as it did in the United States. You didn't see the Ku Klux Klan originating in South and Central America or in the Caribbean. However, you saw the efforts of the, of the Ku Klux Klan. The efforts of the Ku Klux Klan existed when the Europeans invaded Haiti to put down the Haitian Revolution, 
and to create the world's first new colony. Of course, it existed in Cuba, in the area that Brother Alberto just finished talking about, the development of the party of color, the the complete wiping out of that party, which was made up primarily of Africans, at the behest of basically racist U.S. invaders who were rising the Cuban uh, donors and military at that time. So in that sense, I think we have to look at this question in a more practical light. And when we're going to make comparison, we must see the perspective from which we came in both places. I would, you know, say that Jose Alberto is much more uh, has a greater ability to describe it in Cuba. You know, one of the issues when people began to discuss this whole concept of race and racism, and I think historically when most people discuss it, they always discuss it from a point of view that to talk about racism, you must also equate or have this, this issue of power, the ability to do, or the power to do. Now, more recently as people talk about this issue, they begin to look at this issue more not from an institutionalized point of view, which historically uh, many have always felt that racism was something, was a concept deal with a group of people and we dealing with something institutionalized, not something dealing with individual. And plus, it's something that um, must have some, 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 some essence of power being able to do it. So when we talk about racism in the context of how it has been applied in these two countries, who would be the most responsible for these racism? Would, would it be the government itself? Or are you talking about a very few people who control the resources uh, during a particular time period? For example, um, can individuals be racist? Or is that a misconception of your understanding of racism? Alberto, then Bamboshi. In my view, prior to 1959, in Cuba, we had both types of racism, which you so eloquently pointed out. We had the structural racism in which the government sanctioned the things that black people were prohibited or limited to do. And then we have the overwhelming power, economical power, in which, in a country in which nothing of value was owned by black people. So we had them both. Um, that's why before the triumph of the revolution and after blacks supported overwhelmingly the revolution notwithstanding 
all of the scare tactics coming from the United States and Europe about communism and all of the other issues surrounding it. Communism, the word per se, and all of its fear tactics exerted or had no effect on blacks in Cuba because they had something to compare with. Three months after the triumph of the revolution, Fidel gave a speech in which he outlawed every form of racism in Cuba. So if all the chains that had kept you in bondage for 500 years were broken by someone who is being called any name, we could care less. Unfortunately, Fidel Castro, in his uh, endless vision and dream, committed a mistake assuming that ingrained racism for the past 500 years could end by simple decree. No government decree is able to do that. We all believe that racism had really ended in Cuba by leveling the playing field. Now, everyone was entitled to go to the same school, to the same hospital, to the same beaches, live in the same neighborhood, and all of those other factors that outside of Cuba is a marker of the existence are not of racism. So we believe that, tr- that truly Cuba had left racism behind until 1989 when the Soviet Union collapsed. And most people would think that has nothing to do with racism, but given the fact that probably 75, 80% of Cuba commercial exchange was with the Soviet Union, the sudden loss of fuel, spare parts, medicine, food, everything you can think about, created overnight such a disaster in the country that it was like a run to the door for everyone. So most people tried to secure a better position for themselves and what came out as a subproduct of this strive for life was the racism that we thought had been wiped out of the country. The best jobs, the best possibility of traveling abroad, the high, best income were literally captured by most of white people in position of power within the Cuban government. So therefore, although it was not a structural thing within the government, white people between the late 1880s 
I mean, sorry, 1980 and early uh, 2000 were able to gobble up every or most um, position of power within the country. To which I should add and end this answer by saying that that had a devastating effect on black people because I said before, blacks in Cuba were so grateful to the revolution and its achievement that no matter what happened, blacks remained in place. The people who flee immediately after the triumph of the revolution were white people connected to the Batista government. They were followed shortly by rich white people. The third wave of Cubans uh, fleeing to the United States were followed primarily by uh, lower class, I would say middle class, white people and brown people. It was not until 1980 with the the Marielle boat lift that the first significant number of black people began to come to the United States. At which point, most of the important positions an opportunity and government backing for people coming from Cuba or fleeing communism, as it was described, were not no longer in place. So blacks, unfortunately, were caught by an increasing racism in Cuba, and we came to a country where that first aid tip which was so crucial to get the white Cubans who first arrived in Miami and their feet was no longer there for those for those who arrived in nineteen eighty. Thank you. Uh, I look at the current struggle, especially around this question now in Cuba that's being waged by the Africans in Cuba as being a struggle of black consciousness. The The illustration that Brother Alberto just gave you shows that when a people have been held down, when the Africans' development in Cuba were so low that when you say we're now on equal part, it means that there's not been a period where the Africans were brought up in part to everybody else, but it was a spontaneous declaration. And 
obviously that declaration was somewhat misleading and even Fidel came back I think at the third party congress in 80s, 89, 88 and said that you know racism still exists in Cuba and it must be fought and so in that sense the development in Cuba today of a group of African intellectuals and intellectuals and scholars who were talking about concrete ways of developing black consciousness in Cuba and even inside of the Communist Party those discussions about the necessity for black consciousness, etc., is paving the way to advance the Cuban Revolution and shows that the revolution has not ended but continues and that at this point, these struggles, these questions must be resolved because, of course, one of the most racist, one of the most uncivil societies in the world are going to bring charges against Cuba as they recently attempted to do in the United Nations against Cuba for racism. So we have to be very careful. We have to look at this, and we have to understand for ourselves what's going on. And that's an excellent point, Brother Bell Bullshit. Not only do we have to be very careful in terms of raising this and looking at it as we analyze the history and the struggle in Cuba, but we also have to be more clear, and I'd like for you all to respond to this, and then I'll turn you over, over to my panelists. What about this whole question of racism and its history from its inception that would develop in the U.S. to the present day, particularly since the post-election of Barack Obama administration, of having the so-called African president, uh, um, um, you know, last couple of years, how has this either led to increased racism, or led to, uh, uh, or led to, um, having to eliminate racism? What is your perspective on this whole question of racism from its inception in the U.S.? How it has manifested itself to present-day reality, and how has the so-called post-Obama administration uh, period has affected this particular battle inside the U.S.? Uh, Bernard, you go first, and then Yes. Um, let me back up a little so we can continue to try to get this in context. We are discussing racism in Cuba because it exists and because Afro-Cuban, Black Cubans, and Cuba need this help from America if we are to overcome that scorch. But this was not, this did not become uh, a public discourse until uh, the early 1990s when people in Miami noticed that 
an increasing amount of black people who they had been previously accused by all of the white anti-Castro or anti-Cuba organization in Miami that the Castro regime, as they called it, remained in power because of the high presence of blacks in the armed forces, in the police, and other repressive institutions. So once black began showing up on the shores of Miami, they wondered what is happening. Even though the main newspaper, Miami Herald and others, the Sun Sentinel, they all were shocked and said, what's going on? because these people don't even look like Cubans anymore. Others picked up on that, among all, the U.S. State Department, and they studied what was going on that blacks who had been so faithful to the revolution began migrating, and they created a number of courses in the United States to train civil disobedience, at the end of which these people were sent back to Cuba to create small groups, to create upheaval. All of them are on the U.S. State Department payroll. Fortunately, in the United States, we have something that is called um, freedom of information or something like that, that once you go there, they are all listed, and the amount they receive, which total around $25 million a year. So these people, because they were mostly blacks, some of the surviving groups is the so-called ladies in white, who basically were supposed to go out and create unrest. What did that do? To the black organization, mostly the people in the journalism, other intellectual writers, filmmakers, have been denouncing racism in Cuba. Is that now, because of these people, it was very difficult for us to operate because people would easily accuse us or wonder if we are genuine or we are part of this U.S. Department group of agitators. Something important in that period must be known. In 2004, 5, 6, I don't remember, an important letter that was called Acting on Our Conscience, that open letter was circulated around the world with the signature of 60 prominent black intellectuals. This letter was written by someone I know, someone who should be leaving the struggle, but for personal reasons, he got off track, and that is Dr. Carlos Moore. And that letter have done irreparable da- damage by dividing 
are forcing Afro-America to decide if they sided with Cuba with its defect or if they sided with those bent and destructing and destroying the revolution. So that is what brought us here today. Suddenly, American Afro-American visit in Cuba. Well, they had a um, uh, bucket list of things that they had us to look in. How many blacks are at the front desk? How many blacks are stopped by police? How many blacks are in prison? Which are facts. But no, no Afro-Cuban come to the United States and challenge anyone about how many blacks are in jail, how many blacks are shot by police, because we suffer with them, their pain, and we know that when a black youth is shot in Baltimore or Florida, it's one of ours living at a different address. So we don't challenge the uh, no civil, uh, I'm sorry, what do we call that? No civil right organization in the U.S. We join forces with them. As we join forces with those fighting in South Africa, in Angola, in Namibia, wherever they are. So let's help us denounce this problem in Cuba, but pulling together, not pulling against each other. I hope that answers your question. Hello? Are you with us? Yes, Ben Bushy. Okay, let's see if we um, can bring him in. Brother Ben Bushy, can you hear us? Okay. Yes, I can hear we got you. Can down, Brother Ben Bushy. Yes, we can hear you. Go ahead. I'm okay. um, sorry. I got knocked off in the middle of Alberto's presentation. I'm not quite sure where we are. Uh, with that discussion, I'd like to get your response to this whole question. What is your What is your take or your narrative or your uh, analysis on how racism has manifested itself from its inception um, in, in terms of its origin in the U.S. to the present day? And what impact has the most recent election of choosing Barack Obama as president? How has that fit into the equation around this whole question of race and racism? Has it got any better or worse? Just your critique of the prison reality of how it manifests itself today inside the U.S. What is your take on that? Yeah, I I can't see where it has gotten better, per se. I don't know how you measure these qualitative differences in racism. You know, of course, you could say, that once there was slavery, we got whipped by a, a series of lashes, etc. And so, of course, he hit us here and he hit us there. And we can look at that as a quantitative measurement. But how do you measure it today? How do you measure it when you say that... During slavery, the slave master, in theory, owned us. 
which of course was a crime against humanity. But today we are not only free, but police can shoot us at any point with no repercussion and nobody to actually protect us. Uh, Qualitatively, how do you measure those differences? I think that Kwame Ture, the ex-Stopley Carmichael, used to say that if white people hate me and want to do me bodily harm, that's their problem. But if they have the power to implement this hate, and to do with me what they mentally desire, then it becomes my problem. Racism is my problem because of that. That's a question of power. So, yes, racism not only exists, but it exists in such a peculiar and constantly developing milieu that there's always new advances, new techniques, new uh, presentation of racism. And in that sense, it confuses us because not everyone is able to see these new advancements and these new techniques techniques immediately. For example, if Bill Gates is saying that Africa is overpopulated and we know that it is not, but if he's saying that and he has the money and power to implement some form of eugenic eugenics plan to lower birth rates, etc. in the continent, this genocide attached to racism is our problem. It's all of our problem. If he was just saying that and could not do anything about it and didn't have the power to, then it would be irrelevant. So, in saying that, I'm saying that Racism exists. In the United States, racism is sanctioned by the federal government and by local governments on every level. If you look at what's happening in Georgia, look at what's happening in the governor's race in Florida, look at what's happening in Texas. Just look at the political institutions as one of the many institutions. Look at racism in the educational institutions where Harvard is being sued for having quotas that allow black folks in, although these quotas do not work and never let in the amount of black folks that they themselves say they need to fulfill these quotas. if you look at it in the health industry, where people are dying by the millions because they can't afford little stuff like insulin that 
the capitalist pharmaceutical companies are making millions of dollars off of, but these millions of dollars are coming out of the backs and the economic pool that supposedly belong to us as a people, to Africans. So I'm saying that we have to look at many things when we look at racism, and we can't just look at it sentimentally. We can't just say he's racist because he calls the N-word or he's racist because he don't like us. It's more than that. And the only way we can come to fight racism is through organization. We have to be organized, not just in the U.S., but as you can see, wherever we are, wherever we are as a people. So I would agree with Brother Alberto that this situation, this question of racism, is something that we have to look at and that there are struggles being waged and we must become conscious and aware of them. Okay, now we're going to go to our panelists. we start with Brother Haki. We'll get each panelist for five minutes to engage our guest tonight. Brother Haki, your question and comment, please. Yeah, well, you know, there, there is no question. This question of race is intractable. And uh, clearly, we're an organization to confront it. Uh, we don't have stand a reasonable chance of prevailing. But my question is this. Um, what is the role of the church in Cuba uh, in terms of addressing this issue of racism? Are the churches in Cuba addressing this issue? Because I know in America, uh, most churches are hesitant to even address the issue of racism. But in Cuba... Uh, it's a question of race being addressed by the churches. And I'll start with asking uh, Brother Alberto first and Brother Boshi. Is that me? Yes, yes sir. Okay. I want you to address the... Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. I want um, you to address the question about uh, churches in Cuba and their response to racism in Cuba. Right. Um, that's a very good question. As we said, that Afro-American... And Afro-Cuban see the same thing differently. In Cuba, there is not a distinct and widespread black church as in the United States. When I, in my younger years, we had something that mimics a black church within the migrant community from the English-speaking and Haiti, uh, English-speaking Caribbean islands and Haiti. But that was very limited in and around sugarcane plantation. The mainstream churches in Cuba, and the most important of which is the Catholic Church, who is a representative of the dominant forces. So nothing related to racism um, will be opposed by the Catholic Church. So that it was not like that before the revolution, nor is it is after the revolution. But probably because of a different construct 
no churches, as far as I know, in Cuba has really ever focused on this malady. It was seen primarily as a social issue that the government should address. Uh, if it did or it did not, but it was not a part of the church as it is in the United States. And that's the powerful forces that we have to muster to confront racism or whatever is left of it in Cuba, as I repeat, together. Thank you. Key. Oh, I was waiting for Brother Bosch to respond. Oh, okay. All right. Well, my my second question. Uh, yeah, Brother Bosch. Yeah, go ahead, brother. I I cannot respond to that. I have very little knowledge of the working of the church in Cuba. However, I would say that. The church in Cuba, especially the Catholic Church, is overwhelmingly, the effect of it is overwhelmingly integrated into the African religion of Santeria. Okay, let me ask, let me ask you, let me ask you this question. Um, when, you know, we talk about the insidious nature, nature of racism. Uh, you know, one of the things with Bushy, I, I think, is very, very problematic. In the 21st century, there are those who come from the particular perception that skin color defines your intelligence. It's a very difficult thing to get at because a lot of times people don't want to acknowledge and the fact that they feel this way. But it's clearly when you look at people, uh, the uh, this, this notion in terms of skin, uh, you know, skin preference or or skin color defining who you are, uh, manifests itself in the way people behave. My question to you, Brother Boshi, is that, you know, what can we do in terms of impacting people, you know, who who, who find themselves, you know, victims, you know, of such of such a mindset? Uh, is there anything we can do uh, in the real world? Is there anything we can do theoretically? So what is your view in terms of that? Brother Boshi? Are you thinking about Brother Boshi? Yeah, I, I didn't get the question. Okay, all right, all right, here's the question. I was talking about the insidious nature of racism, and there are many people who come who take a position, and it's, sub, it's made just on a subconscious level, but they come from a position that skin color defines intelligence. When you run upon such individuals, the question is, what can we do in terms of alleviating that mindset? Is there anything that we can do in terms of alleviating or destroying that mindset? Here again, my brother, I don't exactly know how to answer that. I, I think that there are folks who feel that black people are inferior, and that's the question of racism also. Um, can I jump in? Sure, go ahead. 
Um, I think that is precisely one of the reasons why Cuba will forever be seen as an enemy by the United States government. Because that myth has been debunked over and over in Cuba. And one of the struggles that I have uh, tried to develop and failed in the United States is for us to work to ask or pressure and request whatever we may call it, the Cuban government to reopen what they called many, many years ago the international schools. And why do I say that? Because Cuba has a uniform, well-structured, right now they are going through difficult financial situation and it's beginning to sign at to um, produce some cracks. But the educational system in Cuba was second to none in this hemisphere. And that's how you can go anywhere. Haiti has over 700 doctors that Cuba has educated for free. There is literally nowhere that you can go around the world and don't and will not encounter a doctor, an attorney, uh, whatever that was educated in Cuba. That's what I want for Afro-American. So it's incumbent on us, rather than questioning ourselves and trying to rip us apart and creating litmus tests to work together with our imperfection to achieve what? Let me... Repeat a little bit of what I said during the NNOC meeting. One of a family in Guantanamo who migrated from the Caribbean in 1930 to come to cut sugar cane. The husband was called, name was Hector, and his wife was Georgina. They had six children. And those kids were lucky, as myself, that when the revolution triumphed, we were all in our late teens or a bit over. So we were able to take advantage of the revolution. And what that pro- those six uh, children produced, a bookkeeper, or an accountant, whatever you call it, a professor, an electrical engineer, an actor, and a doctor, who, by the way, the doctor died serving in Mozambique, and a civil engineer. Now, what, what, or who are the grandsons of these six um, uh, people? They have produced eight doctors three engineers, an, an actor, two journalists, two scientists, one historian, two ec- economists, one electromedicine, one nurse, one attorney, one is a military. And that's incomplete. There are still more. So I am so proud 
of what I am trying to share with you. That is what we need for every Afro-American family. And this that I just said have happened in 30 or 40 years. We can do it together. Thank you on the note. Let's go to our next panelist. Brother Anthony, the mic is yours. Thanks. Um, uh, revolutionary greetings uh, to, to both you, Alberto, and uh, Bamboshi. Uh, this question is um, directed uh, to Brother Alberto. Um, you were you spent time in Cuba both before uh, uh, and after the revolution took place. How would you um, contrast the conditions uh, based on your experience of um, of, uh, of of Africans living in Cuba prior uh, to not, uh, to the revolution versus uh, uh, you know the nearly fifty years since it took place? And uh, how has uh, and um, what vestiges of uh, racism still have to be fought against? Thank you. Um, the easy way to make the comparison. I'm sorry, before that, I should say I am 80 years now. Uh, I I came the United States in 1980, so that puts me 40-something years or 30-something. I'm not good at math. So it's easy to say that I lived half of my life in Cuba and half of my life in the United States. For black people in Cuba, the revolution meant night and day. Black people meant in the 50 years of the revolution, more advances in every field, professional, cultural, socially, than in the 500 years before. What have stalled that, I think, without justifying any of the problems that I said that are still lingering and that we I am pleading for us to fight that good war together. Of course, because of the unfortunate issue in one sense that followed the collapse of, of the Soviet Union that unleashed this grab everything that you can and brought out the worst of racism in Cubans that up until that moment were disguised or they pretended to have understood that racism was harmful for all of us. So therefore, I think the main reason for racism in today, racism today in Cuba is an economical one. And it has been worsened because, I said before, 
that between 1959 and 1980, 95% of the Cubans who came to the United States were white and mestizo, mostly white and a few mestizos. So today, when blacks who arrived in the United States with me and after don't have the financial means to support any of their relatives in Cuba, mostly, but we represent less than 10% of the Cubans living abroad. So that creates a secondary issue within the country because it's 90% of white and mestizo sending family support into the neighborhood. But in that same neighborhood, the black family are the only ones that know the real meaning of the blockade, embargo, whatever we want to call it, because they have no one abroad sending them to, uh, who can send them that lifeline. So for white, the blockade, the embargo is a disgusting issue, but it's an academic, a theoretical issue mostly, for most part. For blacks, it means becoming a delinquent, rushing into prostitution, or in any other way of surviving because they have no one or very few people who can send them a gift parcel from abroad. I hope I I answered the question. You did. And um, I have uh, one I want to raise uh, both uh, to you and Bamboshi. Um, and this one uh, concerns the fact that because of the blockade, Cuba's been at war, none of its own choosing, uh, for, uh, for, for, uh, for, for nearly 60 years since its revolution. And uh, how, to what degree has that affected uh, uh, Cuba's ability uh, to tackle uh, uh, the, the, the race problem more, uh, you know, more thoroughly than it has, considering that, uh, that, that, that being in a state of war causes a certain degree of instability in any society. Um, Bambosha and then Alberto, please. Yeah, uh, of course. And like I've basically mentioned before, it's going to play out as part of the U.S. aggression. The U.S continues its attempt at regime change in Cuba. And this question of race and race relations will be used by the U.S. hypocritically because that's what they do, and they do the same thing everywhere else. They talk about human rights when they hold people in prison in Guantanamo, which is occupied Cuban territory. 
They talk about human rights when they give bombs to Saudi Arabia to bomb innocent men, women, and children in school buses and hospitals in Yemen. So this strategy is going to come more and more into play as the right-wing forces in the U.S. feel threatened by right-wing victories in other parts of the world, like in Brazil. And so I, I will not be surprised if you don't see it within the next month or two coming into being, but I think that, again, it behooves us to now take even a firmer stand and come out and struggle against this before it raises its ugly head. Um, I would, um, although I think I forgot, um, your no. main question, could you please repeat My it? main question was what, to what extent does the, the uh, does the blockade that Cuba's oh, been yes. facing, uh, affect its ability to, uh, you know, to deal with, uh, racism yeah. in Cuba? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it has in many forms because the blockade has been and will, as long as it is, it's in place, the more pervasive, destructive, inhibiting factor for everything that happens in the country. Therefore, if we know, as we have been discussing of this lingering, for lack of a better name, racism in the country. Any attempt or every attempt for the intellectual or the guy driving a cab that see the, the abuses or the neglect that are affecting blacks, if he express that and try to uh, denounce it, is putting, or at least the government perceives that that action is going against the national unity which is needed to confront the U.S. attempt of overthrowing the government. That's why in order to achieve what they have failed to do to, to accomplish in 40 years after the early 2000s, the U.S. State Department junk all of the white counter-revolutionary leaders that they had fed and, and uh, developed for 40 years. And they turned to black and brown people to create a wedge in the country. So therefore, the ladies in white, and you can know that that's a, <laughs> that organization was created in Miami and Washington by just focusing on the name. We don't have to go to any freedom of act, um, I'm sorry, freedom of information website. 
They are called Lady in White. Since 1959, female are called women. Ladies is a master's terminology <laughs> that they apply to these black women that are on the payroll of the State Department. So therefore, they need that image to go out and march every Sunday so that when the police try to refrain the things that they are doing, it's black women, black people who are being repressed to bolster that image of racism in Cuba. Hence, the importance of we as black people to united fight this two-track battle. One is to admit, yes, we have work to do on racism in Cuba. But yes, we cannot divorce the Cuban Revolution because that's where the doctors, the dentists, the engineers for all of the black countries in the world and for Cuba are trained. And that's where we have to struggle to get our children who are being gunned down across the United States, who are miseducated, who are poisoned with drugs, to find a safe heaven in Cuba so they can return someday as any of the Knight James Henry family that I mentioned before. America would not like that. They need to continue presenting us as crooks, as thieves, rapists, and murderers. Okay, we'll stop right there. Bring your next panel, Brother Zubari. The mic is yours. Brother Zubari. Yes, I would like um, Brother Bambosia and Brother Alberto um, to speak to the recent efforts by the current um, U.S. government administration to use propaganda as a means of um, expressing sentiment to continue the blockade at the United Nations. Well, let me take well, it didn't work at the United Nations. <laughs> Are you going to take it, Bamboshi, or can I? I think Alberto's trying to say something. Go ahead, Alberto. Okay, thank you. Um, in a few days, maybe for the 21st or 22nd time, uh, 190 plus countries will once again denounce the unjust, unfair, and criminal blockade that have been inflicted against Cuba for nearly 60 years. It is no different than what the United States, England, and France did to Haiti after the revolution. And today, hypocritically, as they are, they call they pretend to be sorrow, are sorry of what is happening in Haiti, and there comes the good dudes, be it the Clintons or anyone else with their NGO to help feed the Haitian. Haitian 
didn't need before to be fed by anyone. After 21 or 20 years of knowingly receiving a worldwide support by denouncing the embargo, personally as a Cuban, I think that Cuba must somehow not focus so much on this political event which the United States will never accept. They dominate everything happening in the UN. So therefore, between the US and Israel, Cuban can continue to win these denunciations every year. Nothing is going to happen, and the people out in the country will continue to suffer, will continue to stifle, and will continue to not develop. I think the time is past due for Cuba to, yes, allow these um, um, world denunciation of it, but to focus more, give more, pay more attention to its development. Because what is a shame is that the country that have achieved so much in the development of its people, in science, in medication that are now being tested in the United States, such as a vaccine for treating lung cancer, another one that would um, prevent um, people's uh, lower leg, lower limb to be amputated is still unable to feed itself. So that's another way where we can work together in persuading Cuba that, yes, we know how right you are in this battle, but you have to develop um, better relation, I mean, a better uh, agricultural development. And that's where we fit in. Because Cuba puts out every year cars for investment, but it has systematically ignored the purchasing power of black America while it has all of these envoys running across the world, primarily to Europe, to find people to set up a hotel or whatever it may be, but no one has, has, has yet have knocked at the doors of Afro-Americans. That's another task that we have to demand. We don't need to go on our knees because the first and most powerful support that Cuba has ever in the United States is the U.S. black hawkers who have risked everything in support of Cuba. It's time for us to be part of its economical future. It's enough or it's past due in my view that Afro-America has a lot of money, a lot of resources but we own very little in this country. Time for us to start 
supporting our partnering with enterprise in Cuba to not only uh, develop ourselves economically, but also to educate our children. That's my la- the last wish I hope to see come true before I leave this earthly place. I'm sure. Yeah, I think there's a couple of very small things that you could do immediately, and that is would show the breadth of support that Cuba has in the United States, and that is that uh, if you take a picture holding up a handheld sign that says "Unblock Cuba." And somewhere that would, some background that would be identified as where you are, and send it to the NNOC's Facebook page. Uh, there, there is a website, I don't have it here in front of me, that is collecting these photos from around the world, and they have just, they will have just hundreds of pictures of people holding up signs in different parts of the world to show the breadth and support that the world has in making the decision that they will make at the UN on Wednesday. And while Alberto is correct, it will not change the U.S. policy. It will strengthen and embolden the folks around the world who are fighting against this policy of the United States and Israel. Of course, that's the only way it will change. The UN vote is basically a non uh, implemented. Right, exactly. Okay, next we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, the mic is yours. Yes, well. Um, it's getting late, and I don't, I don't want to prolong the time. Um, I will say that you know, things are progressing somewhat in the U.S. because you know we had institutionalized racism, and we still have institutionalized racism and, it's, and remnants. And uh, uh, but we don't have chattel slavery in the Constitution. We, we, we've, we've. Uh, we made some progress, and, and, and in Cuba, the laws are, are, are just and fair, and, and that's a great thing. But um, we, we need a social movement, a cultural movement that that, um, that uh, strengthens uh, the consciousness of the people and, and makes them more aware of how racism manifests itself, and so that we can. Eliminate the remnants of racism that exists. Uh, in the U.S., we haven't had a revolution yet, and so you know the the vast, vast uh, economic political economy is is still oppressing our people, and it's a weight upon them, and uh, it's like feathers on feathers on on the economy, and uh, and until we have a revolution, there will be a, a a mass uh, subjugation of 
of black and and, and brown people. Uh, I think the 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 the, uh, the the panelists for being on tonight, and I, I thank their commitment to the struggle, and I, I hope that uh, things continue and that that we do we do unite uh, in terms of uh, uh, Pan African. Uh, approach to uh, the the uh, problem of racism. Uh, uh, scientific socialism is the answer, and uh, I hope we can obtain it. Uh, I'll just leave it right there. I, I really don't have any questions at this time. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And what we're going to do right now is just ask our two guests, Brother Alberto and Brother Bamboche, just give us your final thought on the subject of U.S. Cuba race and racism. A discussion on it. Your final thoughts, Brother Alberto. Okay, um, I want to thank Brother Lee and everyone else who have made this extraordinary exchange possible. I do believe we need more of that, and if all of us would commit ourselves to do something not only to visit Cuba, which I know there's a lot of things going out there in the touristic area, to go to see old cars in Cuba. Those people have a different motive than most of us do. So what I would like to say, we should all as black people support, spread the word, organize ourselves, and spend a week in Eastern Cuba where we can complement, support, and expand and hopefully understand our history. That's where our history is. And then go to Havana, have a mojito, have some, some fun. But don't, please, don't do it in reverse. This is no time for mojito or looking at old cars. Take your family to Santiago with someone who can help you visit these sites where you can see who we are and where we can go and what heights we can achieve. So thanks again for having me on and hope to see you sometime. Thank you. Uh, brother, as always, for your contribution to our people's liberation. We thank you. Final thoughts for Brother Balboshi. Yeah, I, I would like to uh, also thank everybody for inviting us and for actually sitting and listening to our humble analysis of the situation involving the topic of racism. I think that our primary struggle against racism is also based in the primary struggle against U.S. capitalism and U.S. imperialism. I think that uh, we all have a job to do. We all have a role to play, and that we just have to get on the stick. Uh, thank you again. We also like to thank you, Brother Ben Bushy, for your contribution to today's program. We'd like to thank all our panelists, all our guests, uh, as we talk about our cultural work. Uh, 
Casey and Sister Nathanetti. We'd like to bring Brother Alberto, Brother Bambosha, and the panelists who are participating on today's program. We'd like to remind our listening audience that this is Africa on the Moon. It comes on a weekly weekly basis. You can hear us at from 7 to 9 p.m. on Blog Talk Radio, type in Africa on the Moon. And we'd like to hear your views and comments. We'd like to particularly have your views and comments of this program. And you can do that by emailing us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at Gmail. Until next time, we'd like to encourage you to always remember to subscribe to go forward with Apple and backwards Neville. This has been Africa on the Move, and we want, to remember, want you to remember that no matter where you come from, as long as you're Africa, you're Africa. Come.
thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. That's if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance 
All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they, are served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. 
This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly, if one is here for revolution, and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students, then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, 
bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students joined with the masses of the people came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus we must not confuse ourselves, the job of students are clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system based on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. Thus, thus students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area and as a mobilized area there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that. Power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. 
Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the power of the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interests. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. 
Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hand in hand with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. 
He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Because <laughs> he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus, they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere, the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is, of course, the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point is, the final point then, you must not become confused by the American capitalist system which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> You 
volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clairpoise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you.
Crime. 